You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. What up? Another week, another Commute. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. And we welcome you into Commute the Podcast, a weekly show where we aim to entertain and inform you over the course of your average commute. We want to make you the most interesting person in the room. And hey, big time things are happening in the world of commute. Thank you so much for your support through our first 19 episodes. Wow, hard to, hard to believe we've had 19 episodes so far. This is episode 20. Our episodes are being heard weekly by more and more people, which has led us to the launch of our brand new website. You can now visit us online anytime at www.commutethepodcast.com. That's commutethepodcast.com. And big thanks to our friends at Rebecca for helping us get this website out into the world. On this edition of Commute, why is it so hard to wait and why does it matter? A brain injury from the mid-1850s changed what we thought we knew about the brain back then and continues to influence what we learn about it today. Dave, will you accept this, Rose? We're talking the popularity of the Bachelor franchise, despite its lack of results in producing long-term love. Oh, no, I'm going to get PTSD from that. All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. So, Dave, do you consider yourself to be someone that has a high degree of self-control, or do you struggle with impulse control? Well, I kind of think that I'm pretty good at controlling myself, but then situations happen every once in a while, and I think, oh my gosh, this is such a blind spot for me. Example, last night, had a friend over at my house. This guy has no self-control, okay? So you have snacks around this guy. He is going to go crazy. He's just going to destroy every bag of chips that you have. And he opened up this brand new box of Cheez-Its that I had just bought. It was 11.30 at night. I probably ate 50 of them. So I think I have a, I'm negatively influenced maybe by peer pressure more so than impulse control. Well, I think we all can relate a little bit. And one of the things that psychologists agree on is that the ability to practice impulse control is really important and it's a lot more important than maybe you think it is. So let's start here. So what is delayed gratification? It's the resistance to the temptation of an immediate pleasure in the hope of obtaining a valuable and long-lasting reward in the long term. And we tend to think about this as something like dieting, right? So I don't eat the brownie in the break room and it pays off later when I see myself losing weight. And the conversation around delayed gratification really took off in the 70s with a famous psychological experiment. In this experiment, psychologist Walter Michel offered his subjects, which were young children, some sort of treat like a marshmallow or a pretzel and left them alone in a room for 15 minutes with the promise that if the child could wait for the full time without indulging and eating the treat early, that they would receive two marshmallows instead of one at the end of the 15 minutes. So as you can imagine, kids responded differently across the board from immediately eating the marshmallow as soon as the researchers left to patiently waiting out the clock to everything in between. But Dave, here's where it gets interesting. In the decades following Michelle and his team followed up with their subjects and gathered some fascinating results. 
subjects who delayed gratification in the study so many years ago performed better academically, including scoring higher on the SAT, showed lower levels of substance abuse, lower likelihood of obesity, better social skills, better responses to stress, and displayed far fewer behavioral problems than children who opted to eat the marshmallow early. And Dave, this study jump-started an important conversation about impulse control and its place in our lives, but it also highlights just how important of a personality trait this really is to long-term success. Yeah, you know, it's crazy to me how you can identify these things in kids and they weren't necessarily learned behaviors from their parents. Like I heard a story um, a couple years ago about um, a friend of a friend who had a lawn mowing business when he was young. He never spent any of that money. So when he turned 16, he could just buy a car with cash. How was a child wired for that? Like with me, if I got five bucks, I just couldn't wait to spend it. It was burning a hole in my pocket. And yeah, I think that's kind of like the next natural question, right? Is like, if this is such an important component of success, is it something that you're just born with? Or is it something that is created in you? The results can shift. Like for example, Michelle found that if he added distractions, he could get the subjects to more effectively delay gratification as opposed to just sitting in a room with the temptation alone. But the problem is, is delaying gratification is not so cut and dry in the real world. Everyday scenarios don't come with the promise of a reward like the children in the study had. Everyday life carries risk. If you pass on that brownie, you may still gain weight and an immediate reward is a sure thing as opposed to the uncertainty around a delayed reward. And Dave, a fascinating follow-up to Michelle's study was actually conducted recently by Celeste Kidd at the University of Rochester. And Basically, she essentially repeated the marshmallow study, but she added a key component. Researchers lied to half of the subjects, and instead of rewarding them with two treats if they waited 15 minutes, they just simply came in and apologized if the student chose to wait it out instead of offering that second treat. Kids in that experiment responded much differently the next time around when the experiment was repeated, and they opted across the board to take the one marshmallow as soon as the researchers left the room in most cases. So negative feedback from our delaying of gratification can often scar us. You know, we choose to respond later to similar situations by taking the instant gratification because the future success might not be guaranteed. And so a lot of your ability to delay your own gratification is probably not as much inherited. It's probably more constructed by a a world that generally like rewards your choices or generally does not. I think what we really learned here is you shouldn't lie to your children, which is very convicting to me because uh, it, it was this week, actually. My son is really into some very annoying TV shows, and he wanted to watch one of them the other day, and you know, this goes off of our episode last week, and I told him that the character from that show had died, and so we couldn't watch that show anymore. Oh my gosh, that's really uh, it, dark. It, I did it not expect so you to dark. say that. Now, he's, he's not even two, so I'm not sure he understood exactly what that meant, but he didn't want to watch it anymore, so yeah, maybe it worked. I don't know. So, Jay, my wife is a physical therapist, and as part of her very science-heavy education, shout out to my C in Biology 101, she came across one of the most interesting stories that I have ever heard, dude. The story is of how a freak accident in the mid-1800s kicked off what we now know as the modern era of neuroscience. Jay, the story goes a little something like this. In 1848, a rail worker named Phineas Gage was working on creating a new railroad line in Vermont by blowing up rocks 
when one of the tamping irons used to clear out debris ignited one of the explosive charges and drove the iron rod through his cheek, destroying his eye socket before continuing on through his head and coming out on the other side. Here's the thing, though, Jay. Gage didn't die. The bar did destroy his eye socket. Surprise, surprise. But more importantly, when it comes to neuroscience anyway, it destroyed most of his brain's frontal lobe, which is the part of the brain that controls much of the way we interact with the world around us. Healthline defines the frontal lobes this way. The frontal lobes are essential for voluntary movement, expressive language, and for managing higher-level executive functions. Executive functions refer to a collection of cognitive skills, including the capacity to plan, organize, initiate, self-monitor our behavior, and control our responses. So after the accident, Gage went from a mild-mannered man in his mid-20s to a fitful, abusive, and hateful person indulging at times in the grossest profanity which was not previously in his custom and taking on animal-like qualities, writes John Harlow, the physician who treated Gage after the accident. The insane transformation is why Gage is so crucial to the field of neuroscience, and here's why. It represented the first documented case where a brain injury produced a personality change. So aside from the importance in the medical field, his case has also been consistently used in the psychology profession because of what happened next. According to Malcolm McMillan, author of the book An Odd Kind of Fame, Stories of Phineas Gage, there's something about Gage that most people don't know, writes McMillan. That personality change which undoubtedly occurred, did not last much longer than about two to three years. Gage went on to work as a long-distance stagecoach driver in Chile, a job that required considerable planning skills and focus, says McMillan. This chapter of Gage's life offers a powerful message for present-day patients. Even in cases of massive brain damage and massive incapacity, rehabilitation is always possible. The brain can heal itself. And you know, I think this conversation is kind of uncomfortable for us to have because it suggests that maybe the control of who we are is a little bit more outside of ourselves than we'd like to think. Uh, and I think a good example of this is Charles Whitman. Have you ever heard about Charles Whitman? He was the... T- the Texas Tower sniper. He was a uh, mass murderer in the 1960s. So he's not Walt Whitman. No, very okay. different. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and so uh, Charles Whitman, <laughs> he, he was a mass murderer in the 60s. And was uh, when he was eventually caught, he left a note that said, basically, like, I want you to study my brain. Uh, and so they cut open his brain and found that he had a tumor on the fear and aggression center of his brain. You know, and people kind of, psychologists basically were like, this is this is what made him the way that he was. And it's, it's a hard conversation because it opens up the idea that could you just go into my brain and put a tumor on my brain and then all of a sudden I become a serial killer? Or could you shoot a railway spike through my brain and then all of a sudden I become like a morally, you know, corrupt person? Well, the story's fascinating. And Gage would go on to die in 1860 from complications with seizures, which one could assume came as a byproduct of his brain injury. Still, he will live on forever because of the importance of his injury. McMillan claims that about two-thirds of all introductory psychology textbooks used today mention Gage as a starting point in attempting to understand the complex nature of our brains. 
So Dave, we say it all the time, but you and I are different in a number of ways. But one thing that we generally share in common is that we have pretty similar interests. If I like a show or a movie or an album, there's a fairly good chance that you're going to like it too and vice versa. But within this, there is one glaring difference between us, and that is that I unashamedly love reality television and you do not. Now, I love sports, so sports in my book are reality television. But this is what really blows my mind, okay? I have a friend, Kyle, who watches old seasons of Survivor. If you're going to watch reality TV, at least watch one that hasn't been decided so you don't know who wins. He's watching like season two, Survivor. Well, within this sphere, and you're about to get even more mad, there is one reality show that I personally believe best captures American culture in a nutshell. And to me, it's the perfect reality show. It blends the drama, the romance, and the nuggets of reality blended into the stage theater of it all. Uh, we're, of course, talking about ABC's long-running franchise, The Bachelor slash Bachelorette, which routinely draw about 8 to 10 million viewers per episode. And if you are unfamiliar with the model, it's pretty simple. An eligible man or woman is surrounded by 30 potential partners who vie for their love and attention in an isolated location. And The Bachelor or Bachelorette gets to slowly send contestants home as they go on dates, participate in challenges, and do anything to stand out. And at the end... There's only one standing, and ultimately the goal is to end with a marriage proposal, which happens about 80% of the time. But, Dave, the Bachelor franchise has been through a lot this year. Uh, For a show that has long been criticized for its lack of diversity and how the show has depicted women, the show finally hit a PR nightmare when they welcomed their first African-American Bachelor, Matt James, only to see the show end in dramatic fashion after it was revealed that the final woman remaining had posted racially insensitive material years before joining the show, and this led to backlash against the franchise for its troubled handling of issues like race and identity. But one of the main points, too, that critics of the show consistently point out is that the couples who are seemingly madly in love by the show's conclusion very rarely, if ever, stay together. So, How do you define success for contestants of The Bachelor and The Bachelorette? Well, let's look at the data. Alice Zhao for the Huffington Post in 2015 published an article called The Data Behind the Bachelor and the Bachelorette, which studied 18 seasons of The Bachelor and 10 seasons of The Bachelorette. And the core findings are what you most likely expect, a 30% success rate for The Bachelorette and an 11% success rate for The Bachelor. Now, since 2015, when this article was written, there have been several seasons of The Bachelor and The Bachelorette, but Unfortunately, Dave, only three have stood the test of time, not exactly changing the data from years before. Now, one thing should be said, though, it's that success when it comes to the Bachelor franchise is kind of difficult to measure. I mean, we're talking about ending in marriage with the final contestant, but sometimes contestants will use the platform to make money or to meet someone else down the road. But it's at least pretty abundantly clear that if you become the Bachelor or the Bachelorette, there is a very high degree of probability that it will not lead to long-term romance. Wow. I'm shocked. <laughs> yeah. It's like the most obvious thing that you could imagine, right? So I think a couple questions come from this. One is like, why are people signing up to be on this show in the first place? And to, uh, to understand that, I think, is to understand the age that we live in. You know, the longer you can stay on the show the, and the more outrageous you can be, the more thousands of followers you can accumulate on Instagram where you can monetize your followers into paid advertisements later down the road. And although ABC isn't going to cut you a big money check to be on the show, in fact, many of the contestants end up giving up their jobs to be on the show, there are still very 
very obvious financial benefits to going viral, even if the show doesn't acknowledge it on air. And I think the other question is, you know, more than likely the couple isn't going to work out. So why is the program successful? And the answer to that, and let me try to nail it down as someone who actually watches the show. I think the appeal lays somewhere in the fact that the over-the-top romantic fantasy aspect of it appeals to our need for drama and escapism. And The Bachelor, to me, is it's sort of like professional wrestling. Like You know that a lot of it is scripted, but deep down knowing that sort of makes it worth watching for the very real moments that sometimes happen in between the scripted ones. At the end of the day, too, and I know you'll disagree with this, Dave, but sometimes I just simply don't take my TV watching that seriously. I just want to watch something that I sort of know what to expect, but a few surprises peppered in here or there. Man, TV execs love you. But here's the thing. I can't stop thinking about when you said that some of these people quit their jobs. Imagine being one of those nerds that get kicked off on the first night and you were making six figs and you decided to go try to get this fake love and they barely let you off the helicopter. And that's it. I don't know about you, but I cannot wait for the next season of The Bachelor or The Bachelorette, whichever one we're due for. The Bachelorette is currently on right yeah. now, so you I'm going to turn time. this sucker off as soon as we get done and head up there and watch it on the TiVo. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Commute. Don't forget to please rate, subscribe, and review Commute on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on social. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and we'd love for you to take a look at our new website. It's commutethepodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons. And for Jay Sisson, I'm Dave Traub. We will see you next Monday. 